here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, first, before you get started, Dr. Silk, I said, I just want you to know I've been listening uh, to your book, and it's amazing. I love it. So let you know, and, and, and it, it is a, it is a, it's a, it's a must read, actually. Uh, your book is actually wonderful. I, I, I was surprised. I mean, it was, it was, not surprised that it was good. I, I figured it would be good. That's not but 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 I was really surprised at how for me as an activist how mm-hmm. important some of the things you were laying out that really kind of broke down almost hand to hand combat as you called it regarding yeah. policy and that really thank you for that 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 meant a lot actually it was very helpful oh well I'm so honored that you're reading slash listening to it. I am a big uh, audiobook fan myself, and I really wanted the press to turn it into an audiobook, and they finally did. And uh, so, yeah, it's been really amazing to see the reception of all kinds of people. When you're writing an academic book, it takes a long time. So it took me seven years to write the book. Mm. And, you know, typically a lot of people don't read it, (laughs) you know? So when I was writing it, I thought, no one's ever going to read this. This is useless. I'm not even helping climate change. I'm just wasting my time. And you can ask my mother or my husband. I definitely said that all the time. And then this crazy surprise happened, which is that people are actually reading the book. I hear from activists all the time that they have found it really reflects their experience working in energy. Um, So it's been this amazing, complete surprise uh, that, that people are finding the book interesting and engaging. Well, welcome to The Coolest Show. Uh, so glad to have you here. And, so great you know, to be here, yes. I'm so glad. You know, we share a few advisory boards here and there. And yeah. shout out to our friends with that Evergreen Action and and other folks who are doing the good work. Uh, and thank you for doing all that you have done. But for folks who don't know you, let's, let's kind of... And that... I, I, I'm going to read your bio so they they would have that whole impressive bio of yours. I don't they know wanna... who it'll be. It'll sound way more impressive than I really am, but sure. No, no, are. no. It's impressive. <laughs> um, but let them know, who is Dr. Leah Stokes? Well, uh, I'm a professor at UC Santa Barbara, and I work on climate and clean energy policy. Um, that That's typically from a sort of policy and political science perspective, but I have a lot of degrees in different areas, and I studied sort of the science along the way, um, engineering, technology, lots of different things. And I bring a lot of those different lenses to my work on climate and energy policy and politics. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm up to. That's amazing. Now, tell us something that we wouldn't know from the bio. Like, what's some, something fun you would want us to to know that we wouldn't know? Well, my favorite thing is gardening. I'm really into wow. gardening. I okay. have right now a lot of seedlings going, tomatoes and uh, squashes and uh, eggplants, all kinds of things. So I'm really into gardening. Maybe that's what people don't know about. Yeah, no, that's exciting. So you can have a whole, like, 
uh, uh, fiesta there. You can have a whole like like this. You can go to your garden and, and eat for weeks. Exactly. And crazy enough, because it's been so mild in Southern California, I'm harvesting tomatoes from last year right now, as well as peas. That's a bit more in season. But yeah, it's been crazy. I overwintered my eggplants and tomatoes, so they're still producing. That's great. So 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 Doc is a gardener as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, it's true. <laughs> what does the environment mean to you? Well, you know, I think for a lot of us um, who are so passionate about these issues, we come to it from different places and spaces and experiences in our lives. And for me, um, when I was pretty young, I don't know if it was because I spent a lot of time in nature. My dad grew up in kind of like a sort of like a national park, but in Canada. And he was like fishing and uh, out in the woods with canoeing and stuff like that. And he passed that along to me and my sisters. And I don't know if it was just that experience of spending a lot of time in nature, but from a young age, I was really worried first about sort of the pandas and that kind of stuff. And then, and recycling, which was really popular in the nineties. And then it just kind of grew from there. And I got really focused on energy and climate as these huge crises that we face. Um, and more and more, I think, you know, my own understanding of environmental issues has been changing and evolving too. I feel like, you know, so much of the fossil fuel crisis that we face is, is only emboldened and only available because really of racism and imposing the costs of the current energy system on communities of color. And, you know, that's been something that has been, um, really shaping my thinking about the climate crisis and the energy system a lot over the last few years. And so, you know, the environment and how we think about it, it's always a changing thing. And for some people, it might be sort of the pandas and the polar bears, and that's where they're at. And for other people, it might be really about justice and racism and uh, fossil fuels and communities of color. And I think that there's a whole spectrum of how we can understand the, this issue that we face. That's interesting. And I'm glad you said that because I know for you being, you have a very diverse, very this amazing academic background. And so you begin to bring a number of disciplines together. Um, and so you've kind of seen, particularly obviously from your youth, as you mentioned, just through um, your studies, just kind of been around the environmental movement in many cases. And so as you've now obviously written about yourself, and talked about kind of the um, reckoning that this that the world has had in regards to racial justice, particularly in in America with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd last year in 2020. Um, what does um, climate justice then mean to you? Yeah, I think this is so central to the climate fight. Um, justice is really one of the core principles that I see is so uh, key. You know. We start about talking about climate justice in a U.S. context uh, where so much of the harms of the energy system we have built have been literally put into Black, Latinx, and Indigenous bodies. We have put the costs of the system into kids, things like you know, black children having asthma rates two times as high as white children because we put coal plants in their backyards. And there's amazing research um, that just came out recently from researchers at the Census Bureau, which actually shows that this air pollution is not just impacting one generation. 
it's actually being passed on two generations down the line. Wow. Intergenerationally. And so just like we talk about the intergenerational effects of genocide and slavery in indigenous and black communities, we also have to recognize the intergenerational effects of air pollution, particularly in communities of color. And you know, the more we learn about air pollution, the worse uh, we realize it is. And overwhelmingly, we have been putting the costs of our energy system into Black, Latinx, and Indigenous bodies. So that's where I think climate justice really starts, how we think about it in the United States. But of course, it extends globally too, where we think about how the fact that the West and the developed world or the global North has emitted so much pollution, so much carbon, uh, greenhouse gases, and we are imposing the costs of climate change overwhelmingly on the developing world, the global South, um, on people who don't have the same resources and did not even cause the crisis in the first place. Mm. So justice is at the heart of the climate challenge. It really is inextricably linked with inequality, and inequality is inextricably inextricably linked with race too. So I think uh, so much over the last few years, whether it's the Green New Deal, uh, the movement for Black Lives, all of these uh, shifts that we've been having in the way we think about climate change and racial justice, I think that's really been shifting how we have to think about solving the climate crisis and, and just how central climate justice really is. Thank you for that. No, I think that's what we all know. When we say a lot here on The Coolest Show is that racial justice is climate justice, mm-hmm. and climate justice is racial justice. Absolutely. They are, they are exactly the same thing. And if you understand one, you understand the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get to the policies, because you, you're, the book you wrote gets into all about the policies, about the policies and the battle in regards to the climate legislation. You break it down from Texas, which we just saw, some of the horrific... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you, your book becomes even more timely now after what we saw. But you kind of break it down from the beginnings of that from 1999, from the inceptions mm-hmm. of that those clergy policies. You talked about even how Bush himself, it's amazing, a Republican, was touting uh, his clean energy wind policies. And um, you, 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 you move forward and you, you then discuss around 2005 how the 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 implementation of wanting to kind of add on uh, mm-hmm. solar um, is a part of that, but even more important to all of that, you you begin to really break down how these interest groups um, and how the fossil fuel industry works together, and mm-hmm. in that they almost create this fog of deception, mm-hmm. and you discuss that about how that becomes this kind of combat, almost this hand to hand combat between two sides and the and the win, the winner is in that policy how exactly. strong that policy can be either for either side and they're both fighting and on top of that you're really saying that listen both sides can't win literally the fossil fuels business plan means a death sentence for these communities but these communities who are fighting the fossil fuel industry means, in essence, an existential threat to the fossil fuel industry. So they both can't win. So explain for those listening, what do you mean by that kind of hand-to-hand combat in regards to policy making? 
Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times we might think policy is some optimal thing. I mean, maybe people don't have that view after the last four years of the Trump administration, but you might think like policymakers know a lot about the issues that they come up with the best solution. Uh, but that isn't what happens. And instead, a lot of what happens is that interest groups capture our political system and really influence the kinds of laws that get passed. So in the energy space, and specifically looking at electricity policies, which is what I look at in the book, um, we have seen how fossil fuel companies and electric utilities have captured the policymaking process, including implementation, to really weaken clean energy policies. And as you were saying, um, you know, this is an existential battle between fossil fuel companies who make money off of extracting coal, oil, and gas, and the rest of us who live in a stable climate with clean air, ideally, right? That's the human condition. We actually do require clean air and a stable climate in order to live and thrive. And we both cannot have you know, are out our way there. This is a battle. This is a fight. And mm. the reality is that the fossil fuel industry has been winning for way too long and they've been doing it in a wide variety of ways. And the book really documents the ways that they win. They do it through lobbying politicians, through building up very strong relationships with uh, political staff and politicians uh, by going to implementing agencies, which are sometimes called public utility commissions or public service commissions, and influencing how laws get interpreted and implemented. But in even more nefarious ways, they can make the fight bigger. And they can go to the public, for example, and try to convince the public through things like climate denial that we don't have to worry about fossil fuels, that we don't need to get off of these polluting sources. Or even worse, they can pretend like the public is on their side when they're not really. And let me just give you one example of that. In New Orleans, the uh, utility Entergy wanted to build a gas plant. Fossil fuel, polluting, not a great thing. And there was a city council meeting to decide whether or not they were going to build this plant. And all these people showed up wearing the same colored orange shirts. They had these placards, these signs, they were all mass produced. So they didn't exactly look like a protest. If you've ever been to a protest, you know, there's always colorful handmade signs and stuff like that. And people wear whatever they want. It's not very coordinated. Um, but somehow everybody was looking the same. And they got up and they said, we want this gas plant to be built. And afterwards, a journalist went up to these people and they said like, hey, you know, how come you want this gas plant to be built? And they said, oh, I don't I don't really know anything about this. You know, I was I'm an out of work actor and I was mm. paid money to come to the city council meeting and to speak up in favor of the gas plant. And it turns out that that utility had paid a PR company, I think about twenty seven thousand dollars, and they had hired all these people people living in the community to show up. And they even paid people extra money if they had a speaking role to sort of give a, mm. you know, arguments about why we need wow. this gas plant. And that's the kind of subversion of democracy that we see the dirty fossil fuel industry engaging in. It's not just that their products are dirty, it's that their tactics are dirty too. Um, and by the way, the same thing is playing out right now in Southern California, where I live with a gas company, SoCal Gas, creating a front group called Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions to kind of 
trick the public into blocking uh, electrification of buildings, you know, getting rid of fossil gas from homes. So these are the kinds of dirty tactics that we see from the industry. And it's really why it's a fight, because, you know, if we win, those industries don't exist anymore. Wow. No, thank you. That's well put. And for those who want to make sure and pick up this great book, you definitely want to get uh, Dr. Stokes' book, Short Circuiting uh, Policies, Interest Groups, and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in uh, the American States. And I can tell you, you can get it, uh, the the audio, order, or I, I've got the audio, so I get to listen to what I'm sitting around. It's just, it's phenomenal. I, I don't know who, who I, I'm assuming that you didn't read that, but whoever that, whoever. No, it's not me. I picked somebody. Did she do a good job? Oh, she was fantastic. I, That's I, I, great. <laughs> I, 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 if I write a book, I'm, I'm going to get her as well. I don't care. And people say, well, read it. That doesn't sound like you at all. Like, <laughs> she was wonderful. That's Let, great. Let's talk about what, you, what you're talking about. Because in the book, you discuss about how the fossil fuel industry uses, has used climate denial. Mm-hmm. And in some aspects, they've graduated to climate delay. And we've yep. seen that around with the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what you mean by that. But let me also add another phrase to that. What, I, what we've recently seen in Congress, particularly with now we have folks who are being put up for positions, it almost looks like they've also added another frame, which I would say would be climate dilute. In other words, trying mm-hmm. to get um, folks who are climate champions before they get in to make them so banged up um, that when they get into office, they, they really are diluted and they're asking, but let's talk about what you mean from the climate um, denial to delay. Yeah, that's a great point, too, about this dilution of the power of our climate champions in office. Yeah. So climate denial uh, is when uh, interest groups like fossil fuel companies and electric utilities spread lies. They deny the reality of climate change, the scientific consensus. It's something like 99% of all scientists recognize that climate change is real and it's happening now. And we've already warmed the planet more than one degree Celsius. Those are facts, right? It's it's a fact like gravity. You drop an apple, it falls to the ground, right? Mm-hmm. We know that fact. The same thing is if you put carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it warms the planet, acidifies the oceans, uh, melts uh, um, icebergs, <laughs> raises our seas, leads to heat waves, uh, increases fires and droughts and hurricanes. It does a lot of really bad stuff. And we know this because climate scientists are really intelligent, hardworking people who have been hard at work on solving these things for like more than four decades now. Um, so we know what's happening when we put pollution into the atmosphere. It warms the planet, destabilizes our climate. Unfortunately, uh, from the early 90s and even to some extent the 80s uh, onwards, fossil fuel companies and electric utilities spent an enormous amount of money. We don't know how much because, of course, they do it in dark money channels, but it's on the order of something like $10 billion, okay? Mm. Billion with a B. Massive, massive PR campaign globally. And what they did is they said, 
climate change is not real. All those scientists, they're, they're not credible. You know, they're out to make money. They just spread horrible things. And they attacked many scientists who were just going about their business, trying to do their best work, uh, you know, got into their emails, harassed them, um, you know, tried to basically say that they weren't credible sources. And that was really damaging for so many individual scientists, but it was also damaging for our collective understanding. What's so amazing is that this $10 billion plus lying campaign has not been more damaging. You know, the fact that so few people think that climate change is the hoax today is a miracle to some extent. And it's a real testament to the activists, the scientists, all the forces of good who are out there trying to flip the script and, and you know, keep the truth alive when it comes to climate change. Um, but unfortunately, this has just been a really longstanding uh, campaign. Now, as more and more information has been coming out about this denial campaign by journalists and academics, um, these electric utilities and fossil fuel companies don't feel quite as safe just doing climate denial. Because when, we, when they do climate denial, we call them out. Like when the CEO of Southern Company just uh, four years ago on, goes on television and says climate change isn't real. We call him out for that. But what they do instead is that they shift to a second tactic, which is delay. And I think it was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who actually got my mind thinking about this a little bit. She started to talk about delay and, and climate delay. And what they do is they say, we don't have the technologies we need. We can't keep the grid reliable. It's too expensive. You know, we have to sort of stick with the status quo. And again, of course, those are lies because the status quo is way too expensive as it is. It's just that it's expensive for black people, Latinx people and indigenous people. You know, imagine the costs of this intergenerational air quality you know, intergenerational air pollution on communities of color. Those costs are massive, not just in health bills, but also in, you know, human development. There are real impacts. The, the study I mentioned earlier shows, for example, things like even a crazy effect of like how much time uh, parents spend reading with their children can be affected by air pollution because air pollution can really affect cognitive development for people. Um, so these kinds of costs are real. They are just not paid attention to. They are just not valued in our society. So the costs of the current system are, are way too high. We have you know, the tools we need, but that's not what these companies tell us. And then you're right. The other thing they seem to be doing lately is spreading lies, whether that's about the Green New Deal, attacking uh, representatives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an amazing climate champion, and sort of just uh, dragging them through the mud in right-wing media. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, really sad to see because, you know, these people are really putting their, their bodies on the line here in people like uh, AOC and saying like, I'm going to stand up for what's right. I'm going to represent people. I'm going to speak the truth. And they're just getting harassed for it, just like scientists were and are uh, who speak the truth on climate change too. So yeah, we got a lot of forces of darkness, <laughs> denial, delay, dilution. Uh, it's really bad, but you know, we also have more and more people who are awake, who are listening and who want climate action now. So I'm actually more hopeful than I've ever been. And I've been working on climate change for about 15 years now. And I, I do feel like, you know, these forces, we can call them out. We can name and shame them. And we can keep moving on with sort of the real message, which is that climate change is real. It's happening now. and We've got to do something about it.
Here, here. Well, we with you on that. We want you to stay encouraged too. We don't want you to. We don't want you to lose hope. We don't want you to go. What that? What that? Keep going up. And I definitely agree with you. We saw that with um, Representative Deb Holland, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how they were trying to bring up her, which seems is great to be with the water protectors, absolutely, and the Standing Rock, but somehow trying to bring that up and other things to again to dilute or begin to. So if 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 she gets into that position. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one in which um, she's not as strong. They can almost use that to to bring her down. Um, yeah, as if as if you know, as if she should be ashamed for exactly. going to Standing Rock and standing in solidarity with people trying to protect their community and their own lives and their own bodies. That's not shameful. That's powerful, and that was the right thing to do. You know, I think somebody else in the questioning of her was like going after her trying to speak up for the bears or protect the bears. And I think she responded, I think I was trying to, you know, support the bears in that moment, as if that's a shameful thing to do. You know, they just, they try to twist everything um, and they go after all kinds of good people in this way. And it's really, it's really um, sad to see. But it's part of the hand, almost the hand to hand policy combat you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Also, you mentioned network groups in the book which is actually as, as almost like this regional approach to it. And you mentioned groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity. What's yeah. interesting about those groups is that we I've had a, had a chance to obviously see ALEC on the climate side, but also see ALEC on other sides as well, from creating stand your ground laws and mm. and creating things. So it's very interesting to see that these same groups are just creating just bad things all over the place. But explain uh, how these network groups also have an impact on policy as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Alec does lots of things that are not great in lots of policy domains. Um, so on the right, one of the tools that's stronger than on the, you know, I shouldn't even say on the right, on the business and fossil fuel interest group side, there are these very strong networks that go from state to state that spread information, um, and that makes them quite powerful. So one of those is ALEC, or the American Legislative Exchange Council. This is an organization uh, between interest groups, so companies like fossil fuel companies and electric utilities and right-wing state legislators. And they are together in an organization, and in the pre-COVID times and the before times, they would meet up together. Sometimes they go to really fancy places, have cocktails, et cetera, and they would share information. And so the interest groups would say, hey, guys, here's what I think you need to do. You need to get rid of those clean energy policies. And I know you might not know how to do that. So we wrote you a bill. Here's a model piece of legislation Mm. that you can bring to your legislature. You know, maybe you can tweak it make it fit your local context, but now you have the recipe and you know how to bake the dish, so to speak. Um, And that has been a really powerful tool to uh, advance all kinds of interest group influence in the states, not just on climate change. In fact, one of my colleagues, Alex Hurdle Fernandez, wrote a book called State Capture, which looks at all these uh, right-wing networks and how they've influenced the states on everything like right-to-work laws, trying to break up unions, um, to things like uh, climate change and trying to roll back policies. So on the right, we have these very powerful alliances that are moving from state to state and are are withholding progress. And we don't have that same strong network on the climate progressive side. We don't have um, 
an organization that is working state to state to help legislators, you know, that who just got an office in, let's say, uh, Philadelphia or, or in Pennsylvania, and hmm. they want to pass climate policy. How are they going to get information about what they could do? Though Now, there are some growing organizations. There's an organization called Climate Cabinet, which is aiming to do this kind of work. And I think it's really important that we invest in resources to spread uh, and support information for legislators, particularly at the state and local level, who want to act on climate change, because we don't have those same strong networks. And the sad thing is that interest groups, you know, they make money by delaying progress. The fossil fuel companies, if they can keep extracting for one more year and another year and another year, that is profit. Every time they drag some fossil fuels out of the ground, they make money. And so they make pro- they make profits and they can take some of that profits and invest it in this kind of networks, lobbying, et cetera, and it'll pay them back. It's actually like a return on investment. But when it comes to climate action, that's not really the same dynamic that's playing out yet. We are beginning to see more clean energy companies, tech companies, and others invest in, um, you know, policy, in lobbying, in campaign contributions to for climate progress. But the scale is still much lower than on the other side. And when it comes to NGOs or organizations that want to promote this stuff, like Climate Cabinet that I mentioned, you know, they they have to go to foundations. They have to, you know, ask everyday people for support, and they don't have that you know, return on investment argument that uh, a company does. And this is particularly the case for electric utilities, because keep in mind that for a lot of Americans, your electric utility is a monopoly. You have to buy from them. They charge you rates that are determined through a public policy process, but you can't leave. So if they start doing things you don't agree with, you know, well, too bad for you. Hmm. They can use the money that you have to pay them as a captured customer to try to roll back clean energy policy. This is actually one of the things I talk about in the book in Arizona with Arizona Public Service, a monopoly utility there that worked very hard to attack rooftop solar for many years in that state, actually spent $40 million, which ultimately comes from captured customers, um, attacking a ballot initiative to try to get more clean energy in in Arizona. Now, thankfully, that APS has a new CEO. They are starting to move in the right direction, but it really was a dark story. And if you don't want to read my book, you can actually listen to a podcast that we made um, called uh, A Matter of Degrees. And there's an episode called The Darth Vader of Electric Utilities. And we tell that story of what played out in uh, Arizona. So, you know, that's really the sad fact here is that the, our opponents are very well resourced <laughs> and the, the forces of good on climate change don't really have the same amount of resources. No, but we do have people power. Uh, yes. And- we do have that. And I believe that organized people can beat organized money. So we have to make sure and just organize those people. That's the key thing. One of the things in the book you mentioned was around, again, kind of back to that climate denial epicenter. You kind of kind of pigeonholed 2006 um, as a time frame when they really begin to ramp up um, the, the climate hoax um, way of talking about it. That, that was very interesting to me from the standpoint of I am originally from Louisiana and my family and friends went through Hurricane Katrina. And it was mm-hmm. devastating to me to see particularly uh, poor people and black people drowning 
um, in the richest country in the world. Seeing my own family literally losing their lives, not only through the storm, but to the storms of life for the next 15 years because of that storm. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things there you mentioned was, I know around that same time, uh, Al Gore had put forth his, his documentary, Inconvenient Truth, which was very important um, for our movement. And then we, we would then move forward in regards to policy. If I even want to take all of these things together, it does seem like we missed a moment mm-hmm. at that time. It does seem like from the moment we had the Inconvenient Truth in 2006 and the time that they were really ramping up the climate hoax theories to the time to 2010, to the Marky Waxman bill, um, it seemed like we missed something. And to me, that missing was the human approach. I, th- I think the Inconvenient Truth wasn't only the climate crisis, but was also white supremacy and also racism. And also just a human toll that we didn't, didn't dig up in, in our movement, so to speak. So as you're thinking about this now, kind of looking back um, and now laying over um, kind of that kind of maybe what the movement was missing, am I right to think that we missed the human toll or what else could have been done so that when we got to the Marky Waxman bill in 2010, we could have been successful? Well, I think that's a really interesting analysis, and I think you're spot on. It's uh, crazy in some sense to look back at the horrible toll of Hurricane um, Katrina and to recognize that we did not make those connections in uh, media, in the policy arena, in the public between climate change and the horrible suffering that people went through and continue to go through as a result of that horrible storm. And, you know, that was just kind of the first horrible storm in a series of many that have now been hitting many other places, whether that's Houston, uh, other parts of Louisiana, um, Florida, et cetera. Puerto Rico, Yeah, Puerto Rico. How could I forget Hurricane Maria? Exactly. Um, And we didn't make those connections back then, right? And, um, you know, I think that climate science has come a long way because we now have extreme event attribution science, which allows us to say in the media and in our movements in real time that Hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Maria, that was linked to climate change. That was made worse by climate change. We could say the same thing for the horrible fires that have been ripping across the West Coast of the United States or Australia or Siberia or Greece, you name it, right? We can make those links. And although the media is still doing a fairly terrible job of making those links, the Media Matters shows it's only like 5% of TV news about fires that even mention climate change. And basically that's one guy, Jeff Berardelli at CBS, who's doing like four, four out of five of those segments. Um, you know, we are getting stronger. The movement is able to say, this is climate change. It is happening now. And I think you're so right that we didn't make that connection back then to um, the vulnerability that particularly Black Americans face, where their where their homes are, how much resilience they have, how much resources were coming from the federal government to support them in the aftermath of that horrible event. Um, and, you know, we didn't really make those connections. And then The Inconvenient Truth, like you talked about, I remember when that film came out, I was just finishing my undergraduate. I actually had the chance to meet Al Gore because he came to Toronto uh, where I was uh, studying and where I'm from. And I remember thinking, wow, this is the coolest thing ever, right? But if you look back on that film today, 
it was really about kind of like changing your light bulbs and these small individual changes. It wasn't about the links between climate change and racism. It wasn't about the human toll of the crisis. And that isn't a judgment on Al Gore. I think that's just where the movement was at then. It's where the science was at then. It's it's how we understood the problem. In this moment, we have so much more power because the movement is stronger for recognizing uh, the disproportionate impacts of the fossil fuel-based system on communities of color. The movement is much more diverse, even in the last two years, let alone the last 15 years. Um, and I think that that just brings us strength. It's so interesting because, you know, the Green New Deal ideas, uh, which of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the same Marquis <laughs> came up with, um, you know, she talked, I was really interested, like, how did she get interested in climate change? And one of the things she talks about is Hurricane Maria mm. and her family being impacted by that storm and how much that really woke her up to the crisis on our doorstep. And so we're starting to see that by making those connections between climate change and horrible events that are overwhelmingly impacting people on the front lines, uh, low-income people, communities of color, that we we can be stronger as a movement. And that's why she said climate change is not just about pollution. It's also about inequality. And we've actually done some research, myself and Madame Mildenberger, a colleague at UCSB and Parrish Burquist, who's at Georgetown, where we looked at the Green New Deal framework and we said, you know, does framing this as not just about climate change, but also about income inequality, things like a $15 minimum wage, things like greater racial justice, putting these things together, does that make it more popular? And what we found is that it does, that this approach of, of an intersectional analysis of the climate crisis and its solutions is a more popular approach. And it's particularly popular among Black, Latinx, um, and we don't have enough data to talk about Indigenous communities, but I imagine if we did, we would find that too. That's where the support really is the strongest. You see this in poll after poll after poll. It really is communities of color that feel the urgency, that are on the front lines of the crisis, and that know we have to act. And I think that that has been so transformative. And it's also why the solutions that we're talking about today, which are standards, you know, setting the rules of the road and saying you got to get there, investments, including, um, you know, big investments in communities of color and communities in transition and justice, making sure that we're actually shutting down plants all across this country and making sure that 40 percent of investments are going to communities of color. You know, that framework is a really different framework than we're going to put a price on carbon. If you can't pay your electricity bill yesterday, well, it's getting bigger tomorrow deal with it. You got to use less power. You know, that is a very different framework. One framework really responds to the injustices of our current system and says addressing those injustices has to be at the center of our response. So I feel so much more hopeful. And, you know, what everybody should know is that we're at we're at another waxman Markey moment right now. Right now, the Congress is gearing up for the next big bill to be on climate and clean energy and about justice. And so I think everybody's got uh, a big moment and a big opportunity to get involved. And I think like you're saying, the movement is so much more powerful right now. It's so much more diverse. There's so many more people involved. We've got all kinds of intergenerational participation in the movement. And I think we are ready and poised to get a climate bill finally over the finish line in Congress this year. I love it. I love it. And don't worry, you can always mention AOC here on the <laughs> coolest show. That that's 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 always fair game. You can mention AOC uh from the top to the bottom. And we and we love it because one of the things about uh 
the congressman, is that we know that when the Marky Waxman bill was put in place, she was only 20 years old. Um, and so we know now that a lot of the this generation who is now 20 was now watching her own bill with uh, her and her, her and Marky um, with the Green New Deal that that they are now seeing themselves. Unfortunately, they don't have 10 more years no. to just to, to, to for us to get it right. And so that's what's important about that. I would also say that in regards to Marky, not only has he created the bill with um, AOC in regards to the Green New Deal, but he also brought on his environmental justice bill that he brought on with Congressman Cory Bush. And so you're beginning to see that he also mentioned the Justice 40, that's it, the, the center of the Biden. So it, it is very exciting. It's very exciting to see, um, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, but that but that, this, that leads to this, though, um, because we mentioned about, you know, hand-to-hand combat and policy. Um, and I know for me, I was in the military here in the States. Uh, I was a former uh, U.S. officer in the Air Force. And I, I did not know that about you. There, wow. Well, there you go. There's my one little thing that you, yeah. There you go. There, there you go. Yeah, I was. So that's why I probably took to that framing uh, very well. But the part that I, I think that I know about also giving up ground. And it seems like we don't have that, we don't have that ground to give. And it seems like we could do a better. This kind of also speaks almost to your, kind of your Canadian roots. Um, we, we've seen that, you know, in Canada, we've seen a lot with First Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard with Justin Trudeau and his kind of, you know, climate leadership kind of being one thing on one day and another thing on another day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, how, we, we don't have the room to give up ground, but we're also not giving the power to a lot of First Nations and people of color. How can that change in your, in, in your idea? Yeah, that is a big challenge. Um, so I am from Canada, and we do use that term First Nations. It's maybe not as familiar to Americans, um, but the reality is that, uh, you know, Canada came to a place where there were already people that already had established nations, and we have a different kind of legal framework in Canada uh, between the crown, which means in part the queen, because we are, of course, uh, a a commonwealth country, and uh, First Nations, the nations that were there before um, people came and settled the country. And, you know, I think that um, First Nations have really been on the front lines of the climate crisis and its solutions. Uh, There have been huge fights against pipelines, not just in the United States, but also throughout Canada, particularly in the West, where um, Indigenous communities are saying, you cannot put a pipeline through our land, that this is unceded territory and we do not welcome your pipeline here. And this has been a really big fight. In fact, I think just the other day, um, there were a bunch of young um, indigenous people protesting at AIG, a major insurance company, (laughs) and they were literally physically thrown out of the office, officers pulling their hair, throwing them on the ground, these kinds of things, really um, treating um, them in a kind of police brutality situation. Um, So, you know, in Canada, there has been a big reckoning with how much uh, indigenous peoples have not been supported by many governments. They don't, a lot of communities don't necessarily have access to running water. They don't have the same kinds of uh, social supports as other parts of the country. And, you know, I think that these communities, which are often in remote areas where 
fossil fuel infrastructure can be cited have been really important um, allies to the climate movement. And right. we've seen how much we need to be putting indigenous mm-hmm. voices, not just in a place like Canada or in the United States, but really globally at the center of the climate movement. Because, um, you know, if we're talking about South America too, there are many indigenous communities who are defending uh, the rainforest, their, their homelands, right? And who are literally being murdered in part because they are environmental activists. And so um, I do think that the um, indigenous movement within the climate movement is extremely powerful. And, you know, just a specific shout out uh, to one of my friends, Julian Brave Noisecat, who has been, who's a climate activist and uh, works for Data for Progress and has been absolutely central to getting. Which um, brought it recently in Time magazine. Yes. Oh, he's very fancy, too. Yes. He's one of those <laughs> hundred best people or something like that, according to Bill McKibben. Um, and uh he, you know, he was really central to getting um, Representative Deb Holland nominated to be um, the head of the Department of the Interior. And as he pointed out in a lot of articles that he wrote about that issue, you know, we've never had indigenous leadership at the cabinet level uh, in the United States. Uh, we've never had, I mean, I think there might've been one example somewhere, but uh, we've never had a secretary at that no. kind of level. And that's really Horrible. I mean, I don't know if people know this, but I think that the first time a president even visited a reservation in the United States was um, President Bill Clinton. That's what we're talking about. And so, you know, for too long, we have... um, you know, ignored uh, indigenous communities in the United States and Canada and really globally. And I think that they they are such powerful voices within the fight for climate justice. Um, and I'm so excited and hopeful that Deb Holland will be um, confirmed for her position. And it's looking really good right now. So that's great. Um, but we really have to start lifting up different voices, uh, whether it's in the movement or really in government leadership, because the decisions that we will be making will be different when we have um, people from different backgrounds, making decisions, speaking up, uh, having leadership roles, whether in our movement or in our government. So I think that, you know, it's just the beginning. There's a lot more to be done, but I am feeling pretty hopeful about these developments. Well, I think it's critical. I think our our movement only wins if we we actually broaden it. Mm -hmm. And our movement only wins if all of us do it together. We can't do this as a siloed movement. Um, it has to be all of us, black, white, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist, humans have to come together, all of us, to do it. Um, I, I just have a few more questions. And one of the questions I want to really get to is on this side of kind of on my, my lane of work, which is mm-hmm. racial justice is climate justice. And you, you wrote um, last year, last summer, you wrote an op-ed um, titled Our Racist Fossil Fuel Energy System. Uh, the fossil fuel economy is killing Black Americans. Um, so, how is our one our fossil fuel energy system fundamentally racist, and um, how can we ensure they are held accountable for their systemic racism as well? 
Yeah. Well, I wrote that op-ed with one of my students, um, Nikayla Jefferson, who's an amazing young activist who works with Sunrise, um, was very involved in the protests uh, last summer in the Movement for Black Lives down in San Diego, um, and is really emerging as an amazing environmental justice writer. She just had an article in The Nation. I'm very proud of her. Um, I remember when she was in my energy class sitting in the front row and raising her hand, and now she's publishing amazing articles everywhere, sharing her story and her experience. And it's been really powerful to see. Um, so, you know, I think for too long, we have made climate change, greenhouse gases, very abstract. And I, I would blame myself as much as anybody else for doing that. You know, a lot of the people telling these stories for a long time, you know, we like science and facts and and that tends to be pretty abstract. And we can forget the people, the bodies, the health impacts that are at the core of this climate crisis. And uh, the reality is that we, we wouldn't have a fossil fuel-based energy system if wealthy white people had to have a coal plant in their backyards. It just mm. wouldn't happen because uh, they wouldn't put up with it. They wouldn't stand for it. And they control the levers of power. And that is, in, in fact, why those coal plants don't exist in their backyards and why they exist overwhelmingly in Black communities. There's a statistic from the NAACP, which is from the early 2000s, that said, you know, uh, I can't remember if it's like 60% of, of Black Americans live within a few miles of a 60, coal plant. 68%. Oh, I'm not so Black bad. Black Americans, yeah, <laughs> live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. Okay, I did all right. Uh, you, 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 are, you are spot on. <laughs> yeah, that's an absolutely stunning number. Of course, that's been getting better because we've been shutting down coal plants. But the fact that that ever happened, the, you know, is just stunning. And it just shows that if we weren't exporting the costs of the system into black bodies, the system wouldn't exist. There's amazing research a couple of years ago in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS is a very top journal. And it also showed, uh, that the benefits of the fossil fuel system flow to white people, you know, uh, economic growth, power, you know, all those kinds of things, electricity, I mean, by power and the costs of the energy system are imposed on black and Hispanic people, Latinx people. And that's just like science. That's just facts. Um, and so, you know, that isn't an okay situation. That's not tenable. That's how we get horrible statistics like black children have asthma rates two times as high as white children. I don't know if you've ever um, driven by a giant refinery or coal plant or anything I have, else. unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And sometimes I remember doing it in Los Angeles in, um, you know, a low-income community of color and seeing this giant refinery. And I pulled it up on my phone because I was like, what is that? And I wanted to see, and I pulled it up to the Google Maps, and there was a school, yeah. a school that backed up into that refinery. Think about what the children, overwhelmingly in that case, Latinx children, are breathing in when they go to that school every single day. Think about how that's affecting their cognitive development. It's very disturbing to think of. And somehow we think that's okay. Well, that's because white people sort into certain neighborhoods where they get their good schools that, by the way, are funded by local tax revenue, which is a very racist way of funding the school system. This is one good thing. Canada does not fund the school system in this way. Um, you know, is it's funded collectively, not by a sort of community by community basis. And, you know, that's how we get children from their very young age 
being exposed to pollution at totally differential levels as a function of their race. That cannot continue, right? This is, we have to reckon with what we've been doing for decades and we have to stop doing it because as I've mentioned now several times, because I just love that research so much, I'm so floored by it. These effects don't just stop when we turn off the pollution. They continue through our children and even our children's children. And so, you know, cleaning up the energy system is very urgent. Stopping pollution in communities of color is is an existential crisis that we face today. And every day we delay, every time another baby is born and that could just pass farther and farther down the line, you know, the longer tail that the, the fossil fuel crisis will have for us, not to mention climate change and all the horrible other longer tails of the current system. So, um, yeah, it's really... You can't understand the fossil fuel-based system the way we've developed as an economy with very dirty energy without recognizing that we've said that that dirty energy will go in certain corners of our country where Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people live, and we're just going to turn a blind eye to that and not worry about the consequences of those decisions for those communities. Wow. As as you're talking, I guess, I, I wonder, how do you feel... That this term that's being used by a lot of particularly black and brown young people today, and that term is environmental liberation. How does that how does that term hit you when you hear it? Well, I think that there was a movement, um, if I'm right, coming out of Latin America in the past that has had these kinds of uh, similar arguments to it too. Um, but I think that um, that that phrase makes a lot of sense, right? Because it points to how there are people and bodies and communities that are oppressed, that are not free, that do not have liberty. And we sort of tell this lie of American freedom and liberty for all, and then ignore, you know, all the Black people put in jail, murdered by police, all the pollution in those communities. And we we don't think about that in terms of freedom and justice, right? And so I think that is a phrase that really is powerful because it's also about liberating all of us from fossil fuel dependence, liberating ourselves from pollution, you know, and all the harms that it causes. So um, I think that young people in the movement have a lot of creativity. They're remixing our uh, phrases. They're they're making it more concrete and actionable um, and, you know, and communicating in a way that's powerful and that really touches people. And when the messengers for climate change are older white men, including scientists who I know and love, they're wonderful people, um, <laughs> or politicians who are very dedicated to the climate cause, but are older white men, um, that doesn't reflect the full diversity of the movement. And so it doesn't allow us to have new tools and new ideas like this liberation concept, right? It doesn't allow us to communicate to as big of a, an audience as we really need to. And one of the things that I was really proud to be part of last year is this book over my shoulder, All We Can Save, um, edited by Ayana Johnson and um, Catherine Wilkinson, which is this um, series of, coll- of essays by women across the climate movement from very diverse backgrounds um, that really tries to say, look, there's lots of climate leaders. They have different ways of thinking about this. They have different ways of talking about this. And I would really recommend people check that out if they want to hear different kinds of climate messages uh, from different kinds of climate people, whether that's like black women uh, or, or um, 
non-binary farmers who are talking about climate change who are featured in that book um, to young um, Hispanic and Latinx uh, activists who are talking about climate change as an intergenerational crisis. You know, how we understand this issue is in part who gets to talk about it. And I think one of the powerful developments that hap is happening in the movement is that we have more messengers and uh, it's more democratic in terms of who gets to speak up. That doesn't always happen on like TV news and everywhere else, but on podcasts and panels <laughs> and books, uh, it's getting, it is getting more diverse. And I think that's really exciting and hopeful. Well, Dr. Stokes, I thank you so much for being with me. I, just, I have just one more question. This has nothing to do now on your policy side or okay. your climate side um this is, a, this is this is on your on your on your other side of your brain this is on your cultural side here so i know you gotta have something you listen or watch uh, besides gardening that 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 that's a song it's a play that gets you pumped up i mean you 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 get going i mean when you hear this song or you see this art or whatever it is it gets you ready to go out there and fight the good fight. What What is that? Okay, this is a little dorky maybe, and maybe not everybody will remember or know it. But when I was writing my book, and it was long and hard, and I thought nobody would ever read it, and I would certainly not get to talk to you about it, how exciting. The future is always magical. I would listen to... Um, the song uh, that Will I Am did, uh, Yes We Can, where, where all these... Um, <laughs> Uh, famous people and singers and stuff did a remix of the Obama speech that he gave. Mm. And uh, maybe people don't remember this. It's definitely on YouTube and it's in black and white. And I, I think I actually like stripped it from that stream because you couldn't like download it anywhere. It's not like a song you listen to, but whenever I needed to be pumped up and think like, yes, we can like, and, and Obama's speaking as part of the song, right? Like it's, it's interspersed between him and um, these musicians and artists and activists saying the same words as he is. And, and so that's very circa 2008. And I'm sure not everybody even remembers that, but that is my uh, pump, pump myself up song. <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, Fun fact, I am friends with Will I Am and when I oh, run really? and when I run into him next, I'm gonna tell him about Dr. Leah Stokes, who used to <laughs> play the Obama song to get pumped up <laughs> to get out there. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember Almost this definitely, song? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've been some people don't have any idea what it was, but it was a huge deal at that time, you know? And and it's so funny because I've been reading the Obama book and he talks about what how he had to get pumped up. He would listen to Eminem's song. Um, which one is it? You know the one I mean? Um, the, like, you only have one shot, you know, that song? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would listen to that song. And then in that <laughs> book, he also gives the speech in part. He reiterates That's it. And I knew all the words to the speech <laughs> because I had listened to the Will I Am song so many times when I was writing my book. So it was kind of funny. I now have the Eminem chorus. Exactly. You only got one shot. Do not miss your chance. The blow opportunity comes just once in a lifetime. Exactly. Oh, man. You got some skills there, Doc. You got some <laughs> skills. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. 
This being, has been so much fun. I appreciate everything show. you do to, for the movement. I think I might have seen you in Cambridge when I was finishing my book, actually. Maybe you gave a speech at a church. Does this ring any bells? Or I, Yes, I did. I, I was there in the audience. And indeed, wow. that was the day I finished my dissertation, I, which is the beginning of the book. I finished the dissertation and I went to that event and I saw you speaking there. That was many years ago now. So yeah. that was before I knew you or anything. But um, yeah, you've been so inspiring for so long, for so many the movement and i just really appreciate everything you're doing uh, well thank you we appreciate you and thank you again for your writing your activism and all you do and that's dr leah stokes with us here on the coolest show like what you heard on this episode make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform follow us at fake 100 climate and at hip-hop caucus on instagram Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. You know.